Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, Elise Lunen here, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. I'm honored to be sitting down today with John and Julie Gottman. This conversation was a long time in the making. When the chaos around the holidays comes to a close, it feels really good to start the new year on the right foot. January is detox month here at Goop, and we have a lot of fun with it. Similarly, Sakara Life is a wellness company that believes eating healthy can and should be enjoyable, and they believe that nutritious food has the power to help keep us well. Sakara offers an organic, plant-based nutrition program and functional supplements designed to help you look and feel like your best self. And above all, they believe that food is a lifestyle, not a diet. To try Sakara's organic meals and functional supplements, head to sakara.com goop. Right now, you can get 20% off of your entire order by using code goop20. That's S-A-K-A-R-A and use code goop20. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Doctors John and Julie Gottman are leading marriage experts and the co-founders of the Gottman Institute. They're also the co-authors of their newest book, Eight Dates, though John in particular has written dozens and dozens of manuals about what it means to have healthy relationships and how to get them, whether that's in parenting or in our marriages and friendships. You may be familiar with John Gottman's research in being able to predict divorce rates in couples. He coined something called the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse in Relationships, which are the four characteristics that indicate divorce, which they'll explain more about in our conversation. Today, we are tackling big myths in relationships, like the belief that we have to love ourselves before we love somebody else. It turns out that just isn't true. Perhaps fascinatingly, individuals can grow and heal with the guidance of couples' work. It doesn't necessarily have to be about the relationship for it to inform how we feel about ourselves. We learn that simply having the right tools in a relationship can make a powerful difference, and the Gottmans will teach us what those tools are. They explain the big reasons couples argue in the first place and why conflict is actually not only healthy, but very important. They also explain that most problems we're all dealing with are actually called perpetual problems, and they will never be solved, and that's okay. The most successful marriages that they've witnessed in their careers, which they call the marriage masters, are all about finding that sweet spot where both partners feel seen, where their needs are met, and where they're able to find a give and take and repair conflict with ease. We always tell people, instead of looking for qualities in the person to find the one for you, look for qualities in the way you relate to each other rather than qualities in that person. So who are you when you're with this person? And 
what's it like to be together and is it interesting and fun and does it open you up and you know are there many possibilities and do you feel respected and you know really seen and you know and and accepted for who you are Okay, let's get to my chat with Drs. John and Julie Gottman. So thank you for being here. It's a massive honor. And I do want to say for the record, I was willing to go to the Salmon Islands to show up on your doorstep if necessary. <laughs> it's been a long time in the making. And for people who are listening, I'm you're probably I know you're you're probably most known for being able to predict divorce ninety four percent of the time. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's our best number. Yeah. Predict stability or divorce uh, over a long period of time. Right. Yeah. And that's after observing. And this, I think, is interesting. And I wanted to, to know when you've when over the years when you were conducting that study and you were mm. observing conversations between couples around different topics and you were assessing their like the four horsemen, right? Contempt, defensiveness, criticism, stonewalling. Right. Was it, were you listening for the content? Does the content even matter in relationships or were you listening only or observing only the body language? You know, we're looking at everything. We're mm-hmm. looking at what they say, how they say it, their facial expressions, their body language, their voice tone, all of it, all together. And a lot of times it's really which words they stress and how they stress them, what the pauses are like. So a lot of it is really looking at the emotion underneath what they're saying. Also, we were really looking at their physiology. So we were looking at their heart rate. We were looking at how much they were sweating, the palms of their hands were sweating, and so on. We were looking at the way that their faces conveyed emotion, mm-hmm. how much they jiggled in their chairs, things like that. What we also found that was fascinating in terms of content was that 69% of problems couples talk about are perpetual issues. Mm -hmm. They never go away. 31% are solvable, but 69% are based more in personality differences and lifestyle preference differences. And so the successful couples were the ones who were able to dialogue about those perpetual issues that come up repeatedly without going into huge fights, big, giant arguments, or the folks who were sweeping them under the rug because they were too afraid to bring them up. Mm -hmm. I thought that was one of the biggest aha moments in Eight Dates, which I loved and everyone should read and do, and I really want to actually do it, was this idea that there are these perpetual problems. Because I think we're all deluded optimists, right? When we get into relationships (laughs) and we think that everything is mutable and that these things that are annoying will go away. And, you know, it's a cliche. Everyone knows that people don't really change. But what, why do you think we, is it just that we're so willing to overlook those things at the beginning or is it just, or is it a belief that we can sort of countervail over someone else's personality? (laughs) I think it's a combination of things. One is that we are flooded with those marvelous hormones, right? Mm -hmm. That falling in love flood us with things like oxytocin, the hormone of bonding. So we are very willing to overlook those red flags that tell us, watch out, Mm -hmm. because we're so drawn to the individual that we're falling in love with. But after a period of time, the bigger question is, can I trust you? Can Mm -hmm. I trust you to be there when I'm sick, when I'm sad, when I'm angry, when I'm tired, when I'm stressed, when I'm happy, when I want to celebrate? And then finally moving into commitment. And one of the things that folks will do is the red flags get louder. as people live with one another and the flush of new love begins to fade. So they become more annoying now. Before they were cute, they were adorable. Now they're annoying. Mm -hmm. And in addition, when people have serious problems like drinking, for example, or going into big rages, people think, unfortunately, I can change that in the individual. Mm -hmm. 
I'll be able to alter that. I'll, you know, all this person really needs is good loving. And if I give that to them, then they'll soften. They won't need to drink anymore or use drugs anymore. It'll all be fine. They delude themselves with that myth. Mm-hmm. And then, unfortunately, they're hugely disappointed later. And in those instances of huge disappointment, is that where you can't really work on the relationship anymore until the individual heals the individual? Or what do you, how do you tackle things like that? First of all, you're really touching on one of the big myths in relationships that's been promoted, especially on TV shows and stuff, where you have to love yourself before you can love somebody else. Mm -hmm. That is so not true. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, there was a big research study out a number of years ago, a couple of decades ago, that suggested that people who were at that time considered neurotic could also have happy marriages. And with that, I yelled a huge hooray (laughs) for obvious reasons. And so it was great news. So, no, you don't have to heal yourself uh, in order to have a loving relationship. And people can still have loving relationships. And in fact, we were talking about this earlier today, people who are troubled by an addiction, whether that's one individual or both, Mm -hmm. can actually do couples work to recover from the addiction. And in fact, The work of recovering from an addiction within a relationship means the person who is actually suffering the addiction needs to do work within the couple work. Mm -hmm. So does the other partner, the co-addict, as we would call them. And the relationship itself also needs recovery work because there's been often a lot of trauma when one or the other partner is addicted. So it's really a three-way system of healing that takes place there. And it's all happening to some degree in an interwoven fashion. Mm -hmm. And people can have fantastic relationships given the proper help. Do you, when you think about the the relationships that you sort of penned as disastrous or doomed for disaster... Is there a way for those people to sort of bring it back from the edge? Like, what are the factors? Is it that both people really still want to be in relationship? Or is that the only thing that you really need? No, not necessarily. (laughs) So at least one person has to want to change the relationship. The Mm -hmm. other person may feel like everything is fine. And oftentimes that's the case where one person will be oblivious to the other person's pain. So if one person wants help and wants the relationship to change and can somehow even convince the, the other partner who thinks things are fine or doesn't want to get help to just step in for one session, let's say, or read a book or maybe read a book aloud, something like that, that might be helpful, that can be the beginning of the whole relationship changing over time, Mm -hmm. which, of course, inevitably takes two people, not just one. But what if one person is checked out or decided that he doesn't, can you bring it back? It's usually the case in therapy that one person is more checked out than the other. Mm -hmm. It's not really a problem. If they're there... That's really all, all we need. <laughs> they show up. I mean, part of it is that people don't really know what the tools are to make mm-hmm. a relationship work. And that's part of the research that Bob Levinson and I did for about 25 years was oversampling happy relationships mm-hmm. and oversampling unhappy relationships. So we could really understand what it is that people did in good relationships and what tools they used mm-hmm. to really communicate better. So once we sort of plagiarized all this information from real couples, because Bob and I didn't know, just having the tools seems to make a really big difference, mm-hmm. in, especially in preventing problems. 
you know, where we get our biggest effects in prevention. Right. And I think, too, just the very first thing that we talked about, which is there are perpetual problems and you're never going to solve them. So if you can figure out how to put that aside, that seems like you're way past the like the you're close to the touchdown. Well, well can I say something about these perpetual problems? We're not attracted to our clone. Right. We're not attracted to people who are like us. You know, we tend to be attracted to people who are very different. And it becomes a problem when you try to change that person into you. Right. <laughs> but it's not necessarily a problem to, to be with somebody who's very different from you. And it can really be something that enriches the relationship. Julie, for example, is a real risk taker, you know, and and she, you know, wanted to go to Mount Everest base camp before she was 50 and take 10 women. And she wanted to sleep on rocks where there was no air and it was freezing cold. And my idea of a, of a great time is a five-star hotel in Amsterdam. So we're very different. But yet, you know, I go on some of her adventures and she goes with me to Amsterdam. We have a great time, too. So we can be enriched by the differences, mm-hmm. and they become perpetual problems, I think, when you try to change the other person right. into you. Well, it seems like there's an attachment to that, right? Like you're holding on to that idea. Of- well, the other thing, too, to be watchful of is that you don't want to put the perpetual issues aside. Mm-hmm. You do need to talk about them and develop a system for talking about them, tools to talk about them. That's part of our work, in Mm -hmm. fact. Mm -hmm. We figured out how do couples deal with these big perpetual differences between them? How do they talk about them? So we developed tools, methods for people to use questions and simply one person listening and asking questions that we designed to deepen their understanding of the other person's position on an issue and not bring up their own point of view until that other person had fully spoken the truth of their position on an issue, even if it was radically different than the first person's. Then they would trade roles. So in that way, people learn, for example, the values and beliefs. They learn the ethical guidelines of the other person's position childhood history Mm -hmm. that may relate to the development of that, and also their own sense of kind of underlying purpose and meaning that gives their life depth Mm -hmm. that may also be a part of their position on the issue. And when they understand those deeper levels of what creates meaning for that person in their position on a particular perpetual issue, then there's compassion that evolves from that. Mm -hmm. And the compassion then allows for the formation of temporary compromises that then can help the couple bridge the differences between them. Mm -hmm. In your experience, how often within this category of perpetual problems, like one, one beautiful example in the book, I don't remember their names, but it was the couple where he had to keep the TV on to fall asleep and she was conflict averse and built this up into this massive affront and, and selfish act. And, and then it turned out it was how they grew up, right? He grew up with the TV as comfort and she grew up in a conflict averse family until they split, right? Mm-hmm. So how much of it, is it always tethered to some sort of childhood trauma or adverse effect or sometimes is it just personality? Yeah, a lot of times it's personality. But, a lot, but the personality, I think what Julie's pointing out is that quite often, we call this approach the dreams within conflict. Mm. A lot of times couples are fighting about something, like let's say money, which is sociologists tell us is the major thing leading couples to divorce when they fight about money. But really, con- conflict about money is usually about the meaning of money mm-hmm. and people's history with money. And... You know, money can mean, I analyzed about 900 arguments about money from our lab, (laughs) and I got 100 different meanings of money. You know, for one person, it means love and caring. For another, it means independence and power. For another, it means justice. It has all these different meanings. And so when you get down to the, these dreams within conflict questions, Mm -hmm. then it can be about philosophy. It can be about culture. 
It can be about all kinds of things that have a lot of depth. It doesn't always have to go back to childhood. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like, I know you sort of cite some deal breakers within like violence, um, well, certain kinds of violence. Certain kinds of violence. Mm -hmm. But are, for the most part, do you feel like almost any relationship can be saved? Or are there certain people who are, should not be together? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that almost any relationship can be saved. Mm -hmm. For example, there are some people where they have what's called a meta-emotion mismatch. Mm -hmm. And what that means is they're their beliefs and their patterns of how they deal with emotions when those emotions come up within them or when their partner expresses those emotions may be very, very different than their partners. So let me give you an example. I once treated a couple where the fellow was an engineer, was a heterosexual couple, and he was probably the most quiet, nonverbal, monosyllabic individual I've ever met. Meanwhile, he married a very vivacious, energetic, beautiful, wonderful, lively uh, cheerleader of a woman who loved connection and talking. And she also happened to be a counselor who loved to go deep and talk about emotion all the time. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's a marriage, it was a second marriage for them, in which the match between them was so strained and constrained that he couldn't get his needs met. It was almost impossible, which were to have lots and lots and lots of silence, mm. lots of space, <laughs> lots of just sitting quietly or doing house projects, but no verbal communication. Nor could she get her needs met, which were, oh, tell me about your day and the deepest thing that happened to you and describe it in a thousand words or more. Mm -hmm. Well, it wasn't going to happen, right? So there was a marriage where they tried really, really hard to make it work. But, yeah, you know, it just wasn't going to be a happy relationship for either one of them. Mm -hmm. So, Okay. But there are other couples where there are extreme differences between them, but they can make it work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, you were almost describing me and my husband, but just dial down slightly. <laughs> He's well, not the dial down part is helpful. Yeah, <laughs> but he would certainly, he certainly likes silence. And I, but I think it's one of those things where, I kind of adore it about him. I adore mm -hmm. that about him, and mm -hmm. I knew what I was getting. I feel like when I when I do an inventory of, I'm 40 now, and I look at my friends who, and their marriages, and those who didn't make it. It's easy hindsight is 2020, but one of the prevailing themes was this. It's actually it's interesting too. It wasn't necessarily coming from the woman in these scenarios. There are a few of them, but it was more that the guy was like, I'm gonna be something. I'm this right now, but I will, but I'm going to be this. And then the complete failure to follow through on that, mm, mm. which I think is sort of interesting too. And in, in, in the context of like, you have to marry someone and understand exactly where they are and who they are without tethering your hopes and dreams to the potential of something they might never be. Very well said. You don't said. want to fall in love with who they want to be, want yeah. to fall in love with who they are. Exactly. Yeah. Do you see that? Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. We yeah. see that a lot. Yeah. It's probably good that we're all getting married so much later. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's Little true. More. You get a, yeah, get a chance to see who this person is. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. actually batshit when you think about it that the most important decision in your life is typically done when you are still kind of a child, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm hmm. And then so much, like the cascading of events that fall from that single decision, it's so momentous. And yet, I don't think any of us are really taught what to look for, like what the qualities are. I mean, we're right. modeling it after our own parents, but... Right. Or the opposite. Right. Yeah, and we always tell people, instead of looking for qualities in the person to find the one for you, 
look for qualities in the way you relate to each other mm. rather than qualities mm. in that person. So who are you when you're with this person? And what's it like to be together? And is it interesting and fun? And does it open you up? And you know, are there many possibilities? <laughs> and do you feel respected and seen. You know, really seen and, you know, and, and accepted for who you are? What I, what I also like to say is how do you feel about yourself when you're with that person? Mm-hmm. For example, some individuals you're dating may lead you to feel idealized. Yeah. And it feels wonderful. You feel flattered, but you think, yeah, really? Mm-hmm. Uh, God, they're really not seeing who I am, right? That doesn't necessarily feel good. There's a, a false tone to it. Mm. However, there may be other relationships in which you don't feel very good about yourself. You feel invisible, you feel unimportant, you may feel criticized or put down and so on. Well, that's not the relationship you should have either. So it's that sweet spot in between where somebody sees who you are for really the truth of who you are Mm. and they make you feel wonderful about but realistically wonderful about those qualities that you see in yourself. Mm, that's beautiful. I think, and it's so true, right? Like there's that that bifurcation of yourself that can happen in any in many situations, but where it's that you're just missing, right? It's like this, mm-hmm. like not a true mm-hmm. reflection, and it is such an alienating and strange experience. That's right. I think of a relationship as something you build when you're interacting. You know, mm-hmm. you're, you're building something that doesn't have a structure, like a Lego construction. But in a way, it's, it's, a, it's an interaction structure that has emotions and feelings and thoughts. And it's kind of like a relationship that are the things you build when you're together. Mm-hmm. So when Julie and I get into a kayak and we, and we you know, sail out from the shore, both of us always say something like, Boy, this is so stressful because <laughs> it's because it's just so sweet, you know. Yeah. And we see a seal and and we start singing together, and you know, so it's it's really you know we're building something, you know, yeah. and it's invisible, but you know, it's a pattern yeah. of interacting well, that is really something we cherish a lot. It's at the beginning of your book where you write to perfection is not the price of love practices, and right. I think. Right. You know, for so many of us, we've been programmed with this idea of like you built your relationship built to this grand crescendo in the wedding, <laughs> right? And then you're across the finish line and you've done it and you're good. When right. I think anyone oh. who's been in a marriage understands how what a dis, how disillusioning that idea is compared to the work. That's really yeah. true. The other wonderful thing, though, about relationships over time. And John and I have been together for be almost 33 years now, is that you each individually are evolving over time. You're changing over time. You're experiencing many things over time. So you're navigating life and the things that you encounter over the years, then bringing what you've learned, what you've gained, what you've lost, the wisdom, hopefully, that you're obtaining as you go through life, and you're using all that experience to enrich the relationship itself. Mm -hmm. And you're evolving oftentimes at different paces, different rhythms, tempos, in different directions. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, those can still enrich each other. Mm -hmm. So... Very true. That finish line is only the beginning line. Yeah. I mean, this might be super goopy and way too goopy, but I like to, you know, imagine that (laughs) relationships are, you know, the pearl polishing, right? And that there's a certain, when things are hard for me and my husband, I sort of lean on this belief that we, on some soul level, we chose each other and we're here to help each other learn lessons and, and be that. And sometimes the sandpaper, mm-hmm. but that there's like a bigger spiritual sort of opportunity to evolve with each other. That we're sort of setting up hurdles and things to clear that 
we, we need to do in tandem. Is mm-hmm. that just crazy? No, no, I think <laughs> it makes beautiful. a lot of sense. You know, I mean, I think in, in, a, in a way, conflict is, it's really what sharpens our ability to love. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, a couple of months ago, Julie and I had a fight. Mm. And, you know, and, <laughs> and I learned behold. something. I, I learned something that I, I wish I had known, you know, 33 years ago. But, you know, when I, when I go into the living room to read, you know, I, and Julie comes in and she's reading, I feel really good. We're both in the living room reading together. But turns out she needs more. She needs her entry into the living room to be an event. So if just I just a if little I, tiny event, just a not tiny a big event. event. <laughs> no, right. It's not a lot. But if I close my book and I go sit down on the couch with her and, and say, Hi baby, you know, nice to see you. How are you? You know, she'll say, Oh great, you know, and then I go read my book. So she's been welcomed. Now mm-hmm. I don't need that, but she needs that. I can do that in thirty seconds. Mm-hmm. You know. And I understand why she needs that. But, you know, we had to have the argument in order for you know, me to learn that. Mm-hmm. So in a way, you know, conflict is sort of like the whetstone mm-hmm. to our blade of being able to love better. And we keep learning that over and over again. Yeah. And it's essential. I mean, I know you, this is one of the central themes of Eight Dates, too. Like, conflict is inevitable and essential right. and very healthy. And yeah. getting in and out of it is a skill that we need to build. Right. A very un-American view. Yeah. An Italian view. <laughs> An Israeli view. Yeah. Yeah. Conflict is great. We love it. You know, as as we Jewish people, John and I are Jewish, we like to say argument is Jewish love. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Well, I think, too, it's a testament to the idea, the, the central idea of safety, right? Like if you feel mm-hmm. right. like you have an unbreakable bond with someone and right. that they really have your back, right. then you can safely go there without feeling like the floor is going to fall out. That's right. Yeah, you're right. We'll come back to John and Julie Gottman in just a second. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. The month of January is notorious for New Year's resolutions, which is a great concept, especially when we actually stick to them. For example, at Goop, we kick off the new year with our annual detox month. It works when we implement structures that will help hold us accountable. And Yale psychologist, Dr. Lori Santos is onto the same idea. Dr. Santos is the host of a new podcast called The Happiness Lab. She started the show to let us in on all the scientific research that can help you lead a happier life. And there's no better time to start that happier life than the new year. Over the course of four short episodes, Lori will ask four different experts to share some practical steps to harness the power of the new year to make positive changes in our lives. In the Happiness Lab, we'll find out how important milestones can help promote change, why gratitude is the key to willpower, how meditation and mindfulness make us happier, and how to really get more sleep. So if you're ready to make that New Year's resolution and you want to stick to it this time around, join Dr. Lori Santos for the Happiness Lab 2020. It's available for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope you'll tune in. Balance can be elusive. I work at finding it every day, and a lot of days I don't get it quite right. Sakara is a wellness company that was founded to explore how we can create a healthy balance in various aspects of our lives. They believe that with balance comes clarity and freedom, and that this can all begin with how we feed our bodies. Sakara believes in the ancient healing power of plants, eating vegetables that make up every color in the rainbow, selecting good fats, and paying attention to nutrient density in your body's own intelligence. 
Their meals are designed to nourish and support a healthy mind and body. Sakara offers an organic nutrition program that provides fresh meals, teas, and supplements. It gets delivered right to your door with no meal prep required. And you can customize your weekly schedule to best fit your lifestyle. All of their meals are organic, plant-based, gluten-free, dairy-free, non-GMO, and contain no refined sugar. To try Sakara's organic meals and functional supplements, head to sakara.com goop. Right now, you can get 20% off of your entire order by using code goop20. That's S-A-K-A-R-A and use code goop20. Back to my conversation with John and Julie Gottman. So let's talk about some of the components of healthy relationships, shall we? Okay. Okay. I know there are about four, right, in the book. Do you want to take us through them, or do you want me to ask you about each one? Yeah, ask us about each one. Okay. So fondness, affection, and admiration. How do we get there? I guess the idea would be to do it when you aren't feeling irritable, right? Well, let me say something about that. So, first of all, you have to define what those are. Yeah. So, fondness and admiration are really warm feelings of love and caring as well as respect Mm. for the other individual. Sometimes you'll have love and caring, but not the respect. Mm. Secondly, what's important is not only that you feel those things, but that you express them. Mm. That's what's extremely important. So... There is the story out there of the five love languages that's been around a long time. But actually, there's we might beg to differ a little bit with uh, the themes there, though there's a lot of really valuable material too. But people really do need to hear words mm. a lot of the time. They need to hear, you look beautiful today, wow, you know, this This was a fantastic piece of work that you just did. This is wonderful, and so on. People need to hear the expression of love and respect from their partner, and also touch is super important. Mm. There was a fabulous researcher still alive today, I think, and still doing research on touch named Tiffany Field, who is outstanding, has done some magnificent work on studying the effects of touch and has found that touch can radically reduce depression. And we found that in one of our research Mm -hmm. studies just with 15 minutes of massage, neck rub a night. It can really produce connection. Just even affectionate touch for a few moments releases oxytocin. That is the hormone of bonding, helps to create safety, and so on. So it's not only feeling those things, but expressing them too that's crucial. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking, thanks for making the bed. Mm -hmm. You know, thanks for getting me some tea this morning, or, you know, just appreciation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of, one of the great studies, the largest study done on what makes for great sex, done in 24 countries, 70,000 people, the kinds of things that the people who said they had a great sex life, it involved them saying, I love you and really meaning it every day and mm-hmm. giving compliments and being affectionate even in public mm-hmm. and cuddling. <laughs> so that's also fondness and admiration mm-hmm. and respect is as important as affection and finding six seconds to make out right the <laughs> six second the six thing. second kiss <laughs> and the 20 second hug you know all mm-hmm. result in oxytocin getting secreted i love that you cite to that german study men who kissed their wives before leaving for work lived five years longer and earned 20 percent more than men who left without a peck that's goodbye. right yeah cool study <laughs> it is a cool study <laughs> All right, then the next one was weeness versus separateness. So weeness versus separateness is more an indicator of the success of a relationship. Weeness is really about creating a sense of team, a sense of we're on the same page in terms of our goals, in terms of our tasks. I wouldn't say necessarily that weeness is as important in a relationship as a few other Mm -hmm. things. 
like how to talk about conflicts and so on, but it's certainly uh, a strong indicator that people are really feeling close to one another mm-hmm. and are moving in the same direction down the road. Yeah. Well, the Beatles knew it, you know, and, and their song, I Me Mine. <laughs> uh, we actually, when we do what we call our oral history interview, asking couples how they met, the history of their relationship, what attracted them to one another, if we just count the number of I, me, mine words versus we, us, our words, we can predict the future of the relationship with high accuracy. That is crazy. It's crazy. I yeah. know. Yeah. It's really interesting. I also love when you guys mentioned Dr. Shirley Glass's research mm. and this idea that you have to think about your relationship as a wall, as of essentially you have built a wall around you and your partner and there's a window in between. And then mm-hmm. when you start going outside of the relationship platonically or otherwise, you create windows. It's not so much platonically. Well, so, you know, you can certainly have friends and so on. But what she's talking about is that the intimacy that you have with your partner, the emotional and physical intimacy, there needs to be a wall around that that protects Mm -hmm. that relationship that you have with your partner from intrusion by somebody else. Mm -hmm. And the window between the two of you inside that walled circle is the way that you connect with your partner. And what she says is that when relationships are moving towards an affair, Mm. whether it's an emotional affair or a physical affair, what happens is that those walls and windows get reversed. In other words, the couple, the primary couple, builds a wall between them so they stop talking to each other. They stop expressing their needs to each other, their feelings. Mm -hmm. They stop even having conflicts which arise from, I want this, you want that, let's work it out. And they, they open up a window to a third person, a person outside the relationship. One of them opens a window to that other. Mm-hmm. And one of the big markers that somebody's moving towards an affair, potentially, is that they complain to the third person outside about the marriage mm-hmm. or the committed relationship. Mm-hmm. And they don't talk to their own partner about it. Right. Yeah. Not very weenus. Okay, then we have expansiveness versus withdrawal. That's when the couple... Well, again, that's, you know, in our oral history interview, you ask people, how did you meet? You know, and, and one person will say, Julie, how did we meet? <laughs> <laughs> and another couple will say, let me tell the story. You know, let me tell the story. This is a great story. And they're full of expansiveness about what they love about their partner, what they love about their life together. They want to tell stories about their relationship. And it's that expansiveness that really predicts a very good future for the relationship. They really have a lot of brain cells yeah. <laughs> dedicated to their relationship. And other people just don't. You know, They're just not thinking about the relationship very much. I know my father said to me one time, he said, Nobody's going to read a whole book about marriage. <laughs> so why are you wasting your time doing this? <laughs> if someone doesn't have that predilection for expansiveness, can you nurture it? Or is it just they're not that interested? You know, when we started doing these workshops for couples, it was so interesting that people who didn't have this kind of map of their partner's inner world once they did the exercises with card decks where they're asking questions about their partner, they went, oh, I can do this. This isn't hard. You know, is this important to you? <laughs> and they didn't naturally do it. Mm. Where do you learn about relationships anyway? There's not, you know, you don't learn in school. You don't mm-hmm. learn in churches or recreational centers. So in a way, you know, you have to come to one of these weird workshops that Julie and I do <laughs> to learn that you have to build a love map. Mm -hmm. of your partners in a world. What John is talking about here is the fact that people rarely, after they've begun, they've already been dating, they already have established some relationship, they start only broadcasting about themselves and they stop asking questions. Mm -hmm. And 
as I was saying earlier about people evolving, it's so important that people continue to ask each other great big questions, mm -hmm. open-ended questions that allow the other individual to expand on their answer. Mm -hmm. So rather than asking something like, what's your favorite color, which may be a one-word answer, asking something like, tell me what you love about the color red. Mm. <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's going to allow an individual to reflect in all kinds of ways and to open up, you know, red is passion, red is dramatic, red is vibrant, red is full of life. You know, people may answer that question in all kinds of ways. Red sounds like a brass band, you know. So, and you'd say red is me, wouldn't you? No. <laughs> nice try, sweetie. It's emerald green. Oh, okay. So right. anyway, so it's, it's really the art of asking big open-ended questions mm -hmm. that gives the other person the opportunity to expand. Right. And then they, they usually do. Right. And then it's also, I guess, we all just really want to be known, right? right. So you're, sure. you're showing someone that you think they're interesting. I started life as a, a child psychologist. And John Piaget said, kids don't, you know, they, they don't really converse when they're three or four years old. They engage in collective monologue. You know, <laughs> one kid says, I'm coloring this blue. And the other kid says, my dolly is really sleepy. And, and you know, they're each doing monologues, but actually I think that characterizes adults rather mm. than children. You know, how often do you find when you're at a party that somebody comes up to you and says, how did you get into the work you're doing? I'm really curious, right? And As then really, just listens. And just listens, right? Yeah. Most people just broadcast. It's true. It's yeah. funny. I have a three-year-old, so I'm experiencing <laughs> that at home. Okay. And then the final one, glorifying the struggle. So in the, in so when these you these are all oral history yeah they're yeah. all about the oral history interview yeah and glorifying the struggle is interesting because you know some people really have a story to tell that has meaning in other words they're not just telling the story of their relationship they're telling the story of how they built a life together mm -hmm. that has purpose and value you know and they'll talk about their three year old and talk about how wonderful it is to love the same kid together mm -hmm. and what that means to raise a good child, right? And other people, you know, when you ask them, you know, about their lives, they say, oh, it's just like, you know, kind of a waste, you know, mm. just fighting all the time. And, you know, I'd advise people not to get married. We hear people say that. Really? You know, yeah, rather than really sort of expanding and saying, you know, this was, we went through a lot of interesting phases and, you know, and, and we're stronger together now and so on. And that's what we mean by sort of seeing the purpose in being together as being important and, and big mm -hmm. and sacred. Elise, can I just correct one thing here? Mm -hmm. We were talking about these four things as this is what right. makes relationships succeed. Well. There's actually seven that we call the seven principles for making, you know, oh, relationships tell me. work. Yeah. And this is really what came out of the research. So that's, these are just little measures that come out of the oral history interview. That's one of the ways that we assess couples. So the first one is what we call love maps. And that is how well do you know your partner's internal world and how known do you feel mm. in terms of your internal world by your partner? And the action that helps with that is, again, asking each other questions, mm -hmm. big open-ended questions. Secondly, you mentioned fondness and admiration. So we talked about that. That's expressing fondness, admiration, and respect. Mm -hmm. The third is turning towards one another. And what I mean by that is not looking at one another or facing one another, but instead, how do you respond to your partner's bids for attention and their bids for connection? 
and the needs that they express to you. Mm. And what we found in our research is that 86% of the couples, or or rather the, the couples who are successful, respond to each other's bids for connection 86% of the time. Mm. The couples who fail, who don't do so well, respond 33% of the time. So that's another. The fourth is what we call the negative perspective. And what we mean by that is your overall attitude about your partner that is defined by do you give your partner the benefit of the doubt? If they're grumpy, grouchy, do you say to yourself, oh, they're just mean, Mm. which is the negative perspective, or do you say, ah, they must have had a terrible day. I think I'll find out what happened. Mm. It's very different, you see. The fifth thing is how do you manage conflict? Mm. That's huge. How do you express your own point of view? Do you do it with criticism, contempt, defensiveness? Do you get so overwhelmed that you go into fight or flight and shut down, which we call stonewalling? Or do you express your own position on something with a lot of I statements? Mm -hmm sharing what you feel about what situation and what your positive need is. Mm. That is what you do need from your partner in order for your partner to shine for you. Mm. That's kind of the formula there. And then honoring each other's dreams is the sixth. And that's so important. There we start going deeper Mm. into what does your partner dream about doing someday, experiencing someday, and do you support your partner's dreams? Mm. Don't have to have the same ones, but do you support each other's dreams? And the last is called creating shared meaning. And what that means is, do you talk to one another about your purpose for being on this planet? What gives your life meaning and purpose? What legacy do you want to leave behind when you go? And again, it's not about having exactly the same sense of meaning and purpose. It's about can you talk to your partner about that Mm. and feel listened to and understood? Those seven things we call uh, the seven principles for making Relationships, relationships work. And on the context of trust and commitment as being, you know, the sort of foundation mm-hmm. for all of that. Well, everyone needs to go do the trust the trust date. Yep, the trust <laughs> date. It's a great date. That's right. Thanks for listening to my conversation with John and Julie Gottman. If you're interested, they hold incredible workshops. It's really the only way to see them these days. They're typically over two days and they're called The Art and Science of Love. And you bring your partner and you get really intimate for about eight hours a day and you learn how to get in and out of conflict. Also make sure to pick up a copy of their newest book, Eight Dates, which is out now. You can learn more about their work and the couple's workshops they offer at Gottman.com. That's G-O-T-T-M-A-N. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back this Thursday for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.